Good morning, dearly loved of God. Before we start, let me just take another moment to pray. Father, I uh, stand before your people as one of your people. What, what can I bring before you except, except your word, except thanks? I ask for your grace in being faithful to your word. I ask that you'd, you'd open all our ears, Lord, to hear, to receive, to rejoice in, uh, in the, the God of our salvation. And Lord, that we, we might love you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week, Dan talked about what sets us apart as Christians, and he used the term disciples. And we considered the commandment from John 13, that we know by our love for one another that Jesus is our example, and Jesus is our example. So, and next week, obviously, we're planning to launch into 1 Peter. So this morning, as we consider the foundations of that type of love, We'll be looking at Peter's reinstatement as an apostle. First, we're going to get to know Peter a little bit better. And then we're going to consider three calls of a loving disciple for the building up of the church and the glory of God. Our text comes from the book of John. It's closely tied to chapter 13, but before we get there, let's consider our author. John and Peter were close friends even before Christ called them. John is also known as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he outlived all the apostles. His gospel was written much later, about 80 or 90 AD. So in fact, about 30 years after Peter's death. John and his brother James, the sons of Zebedee, yeah, we're already friends with Peter and Andrew before Jesus called them to follow them. And three of the four were part of Jesus' inner circle. They were privileged to see some of the most incredible things, such as the transfiguration that we see in Mark chapter 9. John chapter 21 preserves for us a crucial turning point in Peter's life. Now, Peter is a really likable guy although I'm sure him and John had their moments. He's the guy that will always ask those awkward questions when everyone else wants to stay quiet. He was the man of action. He wanted to get stuck in. He wanted to jump in. Peter was married, and from what we can gather from 1 Corinthians, his wife accompanied him in ministry. He originally worked for his father's business, a uh, fishing business in northern uh, Israel, in the region of Galilee. And that wasn't a small place. It had a population of about two or 300,000, so twice the size of Hamilton. Galilee was a pleasant place, had a mild climate, uh, good soil, and at the time of Christ, uh, olives and wheat and wine were key exports. And obviously fishing played a significant part as well. Uh, there was a big gap between the rich and the poor, and the region hosted many Jews and a lot of synagogues, so it was a real place of piety and religious boldness. 
In Galilee, the Greek language was widespread, and we find uh, in Matthew and Acts uh, comments about a peculiar accent, which was unpopular with those in Jerusalem. Jesus spent a lot of time in his early ministry in Galilee, and it is in Galilee that Matthew records Peter's calling. From Matthew chapter 4, 18, it says, Now as Jesus was walking by the sea, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, John, his, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. The twelve were not highly educated, prominent, social or political people. They were ordinary men. It's significant to note that Peter's name was, is, is the first in the Gospels, although Andrew was the first to be called. Although the, the apostles were all equal in their commission, in their authority, in their power, it's clear that Peter was the leading member. Jesus spent more time with Peter than any of the other disciples, partly because Peter was always at Jesus' side. Apart from the name of Jesus, no other name is mentioned more often in the New Testament than Peter's. No person speaks as much or is spoken to as much. Peter was always asking questions, and he was usually the first one to respond. If there is a man that can teach us what it is to be a disciple, we need not look much further than Peter. The New Testament also doesn't whitewash Peter for us. His blunders and brashness are recorded. Peter rebukes Jesus more than once. And he's the one that wants to clarify how many times someone should be forgiven. In Matthew 17, Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But six days later, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says, it's good for us to be here, Lord. I will make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Yet Jesus chose this inconsistent and self-centered man and called him to be a pillar of the church. So our text this morning comes from John chapter 21. But to understand where Peter's at, let's remind ourselves of John chapter 13. We'll read from 33. Little children, yet a little while and I'm with you, and you will seek me just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And as predicted, that evening, Judas came with the others to arrest Jesus. The disciples ran off, yet Peter and James followed Jesus into the high court. But he became fearful. Peter denied Jesus, and he disappears until the resurrection. Peter was afraid. He was embarrassed. He was ashamed to be associated with Jesus. John 14, 71 says, he began to curse and swear, saying, I don't know the man you're talking about. Then immediately the rooster crows and Peter remembered and he began to weep. Now turn with me to John 21 and let's read together and we'll, we'll stop at verse 20. And after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave, gave it to them, and also the fish. This is now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my sheep. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, son, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walked wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And afterwards, he said to him, follow me. Wow, so much to unpack here, but this morning we're just going to focus on verses 15 to 19. So let's consider the foundational calling, the confession of a loving disciple. True discipleship, brotherly love, every element of the Christian life hinges on our confession to love Christ. Look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? It was a charcoal fire in the presence of the enemy that Peter denied his master. And he is surrounded by his friends around a charcoal fire he is asked to confess him. It is the Lord's desire to publicly reinstate Peter to care for the flock before the disciples. The these in these verses are not clear, and so we have a few options to consider. Peter may have thought that all hope was lost in his reward for Christ. In Matthew 19, Peter, uh, Peter asks Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. What will there be left for us? But since his denial, what hope of any reward could Peter expect and Jesus could be asking, Peter, have you truly given up fishing and your boat and these nets and your earthly possessions as you once confessed? Perhaps more likely, the, the these is referring to the other disciples. And Jesus is asking, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than you love these disciples? Do I have first place in your relationship? Would you rather be with me or would you rather be out fishing with your friends? Who are you longing to be with? Your friends, your family, your spouse? Do you love me more than these? The third possibility harkens back to Peter's boast the night he was betrayed, or rather the night he betrayed the Lord. In Matthew 20, uh, 26, we read, a short while later, he proclaimed boldly, even though all may fall away, I will never fall away. And now Jesus is asking Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these disciples love me? You were adamant that you love me the most, that your devotion exceeded that of theirs. Is that still true? When the cost was small, you left everything to follow me. But when your life was on the line, you also fled. In verse 16, Jesus asks Peter a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? There's no reference to anyone else this time. It's a more probing question. Do you really love me? Peter's response is slightly different from Jesus' questions. There's actually two Greek verbs going on here. 
Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Do you agape me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know I filio you. Many scholars don't see a distinction between the use of these two terms, and they've got very good reasons for it. The two words are often used interchangeably in the New Testament. Many of us have heard that agape means this unconditional God-like love. Like the, like the passage we find in 1 Corinthians 13. But this is not always true. Agape is also used in John chapter 12, where it is said that the Pharisees loved the praise of men. And Demas in 2 Timothy 4, who loved the present age. In fact, agape became the standard verb for to love in Greek literature hundreds of years before the New Testament. And so agape takes a very similar space as our English word love, with such a wide range of meanings that it relies heavily on context. The verb filio does have a narrower meaning, describing affection, ranging from general emotion to a deep love. In John 20, it describes the disciple whom Jesus loved. It expresses a love for relatives and for friends, but it also describes God's love for Christ. We find this in John 5. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things. Challengingly though, this love is also used of the Pharisees, the hypocrites rather, who love to be seen in public praying in Matthew chapter six. And it can mean to kiss. It is the, it is the word used uh, in the garden as Judas betrayed Jesus. So now that I've left you some room to disagree, disagree with me, I want to argue that in this instance, the use of two different words seems intentional. Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him. The first two times Jesus says, do you agape me? And Peter responds, I feel you. Perhaps Jesus is calling Peter to a higher love and filio is the best that Peter can muster. Or alternatively, Jesus is asking if Peter maybe wants to reconsider his use of filio. As we've heard from Tim this morning about the tax collector, broken. Perhaps Peter's heart is bleeding, an expression of emotional, deep-felt love, so that if there was a better word, he would use it. The third time Jesus asks Peter, Peter do you love me? And this time Jesus asks him using the word filio. You say that you love me, and you say that you love me in this way. Do you really love me the way that you say you love me? A confession of genuine love for Christ should be the first examination of our own hearts. If you have not already asked yourself this question this morning, then right now, ask yourself, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you love him more than these? Do you love him? Peter is grieved in his response. Not yes, Lord, in verse 17, as he had said previously, 
Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. There's no rebuke coming from Peter. He doesn't appeal to anything within himself. He's convinced that he possesses this love, but he throws himself wholly on the Lord. You know all things. You can see into my heart. You know that I love you. The primary mark of the redeemed has always been love for God. David captures this in Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Our lives bring glory to God through loving Him. And as we are so aware, we are able to love Him because He first loved us. Our love for Jesus must be placed above everything else. Jesus confronts Peter with love because he wanted Peter to lead the disciples, but without a supreme love for Christ, he could not be an effective shepherd. So let us consider our second calling, the commission of a loving disciple. Returning back to verse 15, we see the first command given to Peter. Feed my lambs. Peter makes a a similar statement in 1 Peter chapter 2, commanding the believers to be like newborn babies longing for the pure spiritual milk of the word. Peter's concern needs to be the feeding of those hungry believers who have tasted the goodness and grace of the Lord Jesus and continue to desire more of that goodness. The first and primary duty that Peter is charged is the teaching of God's word. In these verses, we have the command, feed, then shepherd, then feed. And we find this principle throughout Scripture. Paul's instruction to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The feeding with the word was the first duty of the shepherd and the commission of the body is to love, is that love for the word. The second command Peter gives in verse 16 is to shepherd my sheep. Jesus warned the disciples before his death saying, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When the sheep do not have a shepherd, they scatter. And Jeremiah the Lord condemns those worthless shepherds who drive away the sheep and fail to attend to them. They did not search for them and they fed themselves to the neglect of the flock. The duty of the shepherd is to keep watch over the flock, to guard against the wolves and to keep the sheep from wandering or to gather the sheep rather as they wander. Peter passes on this command In 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sorrow gain, but with eagerness. Not yet as lording it over them to those allotted to your charge, but proving an example for the flock. Similarly, in Acts chapter 20, it says, Be on your guard yourselves and for your flock 
among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, with which he, which he purchased with his blood. So in this command, the focus is not on proclaiming the word, but on caring for the believers, like the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus dealt with the disciples' lack of understanding by continually, patiently teaching them. He dealt with their lack of humility by demonstrating humility. He dealt by, with their lack of faith by demonstrating the power of God. He dealt with their lack of commitment by praying for them. And he appoints Peter and the 12 that they might be with him in order that they might become like him. And they did. Verse 17 returns again, for the sheep's need to be fed. There's no point in your Christian life where you do not need the sustenance of the word of God. It is that word that sanctifies you. It is that word that the Holy Spirit uses to work in you. And this is Peter's final charge. The commission of Christ's love results in a love for the body of Christ. The one another love that Dan pointed out for us. This is the basic qualification for all Christian service. Other qualities are desirable, but love is indispensable. Those who see no variation in the use of love also don't see any variation between tending and shepherding, lamb and sheep. That could be correct, but the principles in this section are still the same. The audience remains the same. They are the Lord's sheep. They are the Lord's lambs for whom he laid down his life. As we come to verse 18 and 19, we consider the cost of a loving disciple. Our third point, the cost of a loving disciple. Let's read our text. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and yet another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And afterwards saying this, he said to him, follow me. Jesus again is making a prophetic statement with the same solemn introduction, truly, truly, that predicted Peter's denial in John 13. Jesus recalls past, Peter's past and predicts his future and here and now the command is to follow him. To follow him would entail Peter's own death. Previously, Jesus had said, where I am going, you cannot follow me. But now the expression, to stretch out your hands, is an indication of crucifixion. Peter's arms would be outstretched on the crossbeam. And even as Christ carried the cross to the place of the crucifixion, guided by another, Peter would be imitating Christ, not only in the kind of death he suffered, but also in bringing glory to God in his death. A death not accomplishing a once and all victory, but a simple result of a faithful disciple to his master. Something a Christian who follows Jesus 
must be prepared to pay. Because Jesus paid the total price for salvation, it costs nothing to become his disciple. But to follow him as a faithful disciple, it costs everything we have. Jesus' words to Peter, follow me, means more than a private walk along the beach. The challenge Peter is faced with is martyrdom. The Greek present tense, keep on following, may indicate an intentional force. Peter had followed Christ, but not continually in the past. And now he's called to follow him steadily, to walk in the way of the Lord. Peter lived three decades serving the Lord, anticipating his death before, before him. And as Dan mentioned last week, church tradition recorded that Peter suffered martyrdom the hands of Nero, being crucified upside down because he considered himself not worthy to be crucified the same way as his Lord. As we reach the end of our text and look back, we see a, song, a strong resemblance to the account of Peter's denial in John 13. But in reverse order, we see the same three ideas occur in both texts. Firstly, Jesus, has said, Jesus had said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But here he says, follow me. Jesus also predicted the cross saying, you will follow me afterwards. And the fulfillment of that, you will stretch out your hands. And finally, Peter denies the Lord three times and here he's asked to acknowledge him three times. Now, we're tempted to become discouraged and disheartened when our spiritual life and witness suffer because of our sins and failures. Satan attempts to convince us that those shortcomings render us useless to God. But his use of these apostles testifies to the very opposite. The world was not turned upside down because these extraordinary men were talented or gifted but because in spite of their human limitations and failures, they surrendered themselves to God. Weighing up these three calls of a loving disciple, the confession to Jesus' question, do you love me? The commission to teach God's word, love the body and shepherd the flock, and the cost of this world and this life for the infinite value of Christ. Let me bring you to this sobering illustration. Imagine a time when men like Emperor Nero have in their minds to destroy this world and rebuild it as they see fit. A time when many are homeless and hopeless and killed and bitter resentment stirs in people who have lost everything. Imagine that at that time, to identify as a Christian is seen as offensive and violent. A people hated because of their love for truth. Imagine that men like Nero chose to redirect the blame for burning down Rome toward these Christians. 
and a vicious persecution spread out through the world. Jesus' teaching was not difficult because it's hard to understand, but because it's hard to accept. But how great a salvation is laid before us. What is the value of Christ? And is it worth everything? Except for Judas, the 12 decided to eat the bread, to eat the flesh and drink the blood of Christ, whatever the cost. They had no idea of the particulars of the cost, but they placed themselves in the Lord's hand, confident that in him and only in him was eternal life and everything else of any value. In John 6, 67, after the crowd left, Jesus asked the disciples, do you also want to go away? Do you? He wanted to make sure that the 12 realized in their own minds the cost of true discipleship. And Peter replies for the group saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. A love for Christ overflows into a sustained life by the grace of God. You know, Peter remained obedient to the Lord's commission for the rest of his life. He not only proclaimed the gospel, but he feared and cared for the flock that the Lord had entrusted to him. In contrast to the Peter that we have considered a day to today, the apostle boldly proclaims in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today, for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given by which men must be saved. Saved by Christ's blood, but also bought with it, and therefore belonging totally to him. The love of Christ laid the foundation for every Christian work, a love that stirred within us, by his spirit and power. If we do not have love, we have nothing. We are a noisy gong, we are a clanging cymbal, and we white knuckle a works-based life. If we have love, we can serve the body, we can love the church, we can pursue leadership, and we can follow Jesus, no matter the cost. Father, we know our, our love falls short. But we love you, Lord. We love you. Wretched man that I am, what can I bring before you? But, but Lord, I love you. And so, Lord, be the apple of our eye. Be the one to whom we look. And because we love you, help us 
Help us, Lord, to love others. Help us, Lord, to lay down our lives for you. Help us not to hold on to this world and the things of this world. They're beautiful, but Lord, help us to see your beauty, to see how wonderful you are and and to grasp the height and depth and breadth, the surpassing worth of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.